Hello and welcome to the second episode of Establish Your First Line of Defense, brought to you by HP Wolf Security in association with Computer World. In this series, we're lifting the lid on the tangled web of cybersecurity and asking how businesses can protect themselves against the relentless rise of cybercrime. Recent high-profile attacks involving Kaseya, SolarWinds and Colonial Pipeline, amongst others, have exposed how vulnerable even advanced security systems are. And the big move to home and hybrid working brought on by the pandemic has made the CISO's job even more challenging. But we're lucky enough to have two experts on hand to give us their top tips on how to keep the cybercriminals from the door. My name's Dave Cartwright. I am Deputy Chair of the Channel Islands Information Security Forum. In my day job, I'm Head of IT Security in a bank. Hello, I'm Ian Pratt. I'm Global Head of Security for HP Personal Systems. First up, Ian and Dave, what changes have you seen to the threat landscape post-COVID? To a large extent, the threat landscape we've seen has just been a continuation of what we've been seeing for years. Sort of attackers know that the easiest way into an organization is through exploiting the weakest link in security, which is typically the end user, tricking them into clicking on an email, a message, or a web link. That exposes vulnerabilities in the software on the device, and it gives the attackers a beachhead into the enterprise. And over 70% of breaches you know, start with an endpoint compromise. And the work-from-home situation has just made employees even more vulnerable to being tricked, you know, perhaps as they haven't been sitting next to colleagues that they can consult with whether you know, something looks legitimate. And then against this backdrop, we've seen real growth in the profits that organized crime groups are making. And that's given them more money to invest in becoming more sophisticated. And I think it's really raised the stakes for organizations. It's been interesting when lockdown happened with regard to inbound phishing and scam and spam type email, I don't think the volume particularly changed. We did see a little bit of a spike, but the largest change I saw was in the nature of the messages. There was so much targeting specifically towards COVID, be it from cheap masks to hand sanitizer to you know, even special COVID money lending offers. The other thing we've seen is a lot of people are seeing automated hammering of websites by robots pretending to be people trying to automate logins and that kind of thing. Whether that's COVID related, hard to tell. People are now beginning to drift back to the more cyber secure surroundings of the office. But for many, home working is here to stay. So, Dave, how can IT security bosses help employees work more securely? In a word, information. In the banking industry in general, I mean, a lot of my peers have said the same thing. We were already reasonably well set up for homeworking because it's something a lot of us do anyway. And so things like virtual desktops, yeah, remote access in a secure manner, all of that fun stuff is largely an understood quantity to us. The challenge has really been just keeping the education up. But of course, you know, like the rest of the world, what everyone that I've come across has done is to, to go electronic and where we can't stand in front of a room full of people telling them all about fun new attacks and how to protect themselves, we do it electronically instead. And one thing we've always done wherever I've been the security guy is talk to people about the security of their home networks as much as their work kit. The weak link is the user's home network. So even things like telling people to change the default password on their home router just in general, yeah, this is a message that I always give to people regardless of uh, whether we're in a pandemic. And over time, it's proved to be a definite bonus. 
But however hard you try to educate your employees, it's all but impossible to guarantee the security of your system. There are just too many variables, and many businesses now see some breaches as almost inevitable. Here's HP's Ian Pratt's view. The approach that we've taken with uh, HP Wolf Security is to, to really recognise we need these endpoints to be able to, uh, to be autonomous, to be able to defend themselves, and really ensuring that we've got an architecture that is designed for that, that isn't reliant on connections back into the enterprise network to be able to, uh, to keep that device safe. And it's really about taking a zero trust approach to how the infrastructure and even the endpoint itself is architected so that you can actually contain failure. If you think about how most security tools work, they, they really rely on detection. But the bad guys are very good at making tweaks to their malware such that it evades detection. And so we really need to look at an architectural approach to security that enables us to ensure the security of what we're doing, even if you can't detect the malware. And that's really where some of these zero trust approaches coming in, where you're able to apply some really sound security engineering principles, things like the principle of least trust, where you're trying to limit and contain any given activity such that it's, if something goes wrong, then it doesn't impact other activities or other connections to other resources. And certainly one of the key approaches we, we bring to that is this idea that whenever the user is performing a task, perhaps they're doing a risky activity like clicking on an email attachment that they've received in an email or uh, you know, clicking on a link, we can create a virtual machine which will be used to perform that particular task. That virtual machine will live just for the life of the task and have access to just the resources needed for that task and no more. And so if it does turn out to be malicious, then it's contained. There's nothing for the attacker to steal. And then as soon as I click close on that document, we're going to throw that virtual machine away. We're going to be back to a clean state. And so by taking this kind of approach, you can end up with a far more robust approach to security that doesn't rely on being able to detect these attacks ahead of time. We can actually be able to contain the failure and end up with a situation where no harm has been done by a user being tricked into clicking on some piece of malware. Now, this may seem like it's the wrong way around and that stopping people clicking on the link or opening that email is the thing that you should try to do first and foremost. But in Dave Cartwright's experience, that isn't really possible. There's not a lot you can do to actually stop it, but what you can do is to obviously educate everywhere I've ever been. I've stood in front of people virtually or for real pointing out really what happens and, and showing examples of, of, of what can happen. But then the other solution is to ensure that you're protected at both at the perimeter and the device. So you, you have perimeter protection for you know, inbound spam, inbound phishing, which hopefully detects the majority of what's coming in. You, know, you have software on the device for both virus malware recognition and also endpoint protection. So you'll never stop it. But all you can do is to combine that education with the technology and that will generally mitigate the risk largely. But of course, there is always that remaining risk. Yeah, I mean, education can certainly help, but some of these attacks are really well-crafted and very difficult even for a security professional to tell. We saw an increase in attacks in the, uh, the last few months where having compromised one machine and having access to a user's inbox, the attackers then reply or, or add to existing email conversations that user is having both within their organization and perhaps with other organizations, suppliers or companies that uh, their business is working with. So the recipient, they're receiving an email from someone that they're used to communicating with. 
the subject line of the email all looks correct. It's just that it will be containing something which will, if clicked on, turn out to be malicious. And I think it's very difficult to expect users to be able to identify that. It's pretty much impossible. So there's always going to be some level of clicks happening. I completely agree. The other thing that uh, one has to bear in mind, of course, is I've seen many instances where the malware has found its way in from a legitimate third party. So I can think of an example where a salesperson at the organization I was consulting for was interacting with a customer. They were going to and fro for several days over the course of a week. Halfway through the week, the the customer got infected, which caused the the salesperson's um, PC to be infected. And what had happened was the malware came in, not just from someone convincingly pretending to be a good actor, but actually someone who genuinely was a trusted person. There is always going to be that chance of infection, no matter how small. So how do you strike the balance between being as secure as possible and having a system that doesn't get in everyone's way and stifle innovation? Security is always inconvenient because that's the nature of the beast. So yeah, putting security into systems will generally make the user's experience less streamlined than not putting it in. What you have to do is to say to yourself, how can I minimise the inconvenience? Your utopia in security is to make the right way to do things, the most secure way to do things, also the easiest way to do things. But that tends not to be terribly straightforward. One thing that I know a lot of people are looking at is uh, face recognition for login to to corporate devices. And that's pretty popular, actually. And it's great for the user because you just gaze at your computer and and you're authenticated. But yes, I think it's probably an understatement to say, will there ever be a danger? Because yes, it's absolutely something that that we in security contend with all the time, is, is trying to keep things secure whilst not unduly getting in the way of the users. Part of the message we're back to, to training, you know, if you stand and explain to the users why we're doing it, actually that is half the battle. A lot of the time they're told, this is what you have to do. You have to have a 12-letter password with upper, lower, you name it. And they say, well, you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. But if you say, here's why, and here's the risk with shorter passwords, then people start to go, all oh, right, I'm understanding this. I understand the consequences of getting it wrong. Engaging the users is a great thing to do, but also if you can make it as easy as reasonably possible, that's how you win the battle. You can never underestimate the creativity of users of being able to circumvent security measures if you have got that balance wrong and made it too onerous for them and fail to explain why it's important. Certainly that's key to so much of what we do is designing things to be as transparent as possible to the end user while providing them with that protection. Absolutely. And what one thing I found is very, very useful on the awareness thing is actually showing them where their organization has had an issue. So where someone's left an unattended laptop on a car seat, for instance, because a lot of the training talks about the talk, talk attack, but actually doesn't relate to you or your company or your locality. If you show people, actually, here's examples of what happened to us, it really brings the message home. So Ian, how do security experts get that balance right? So a lot of the challenges with existing security products are around false positives, blocking the user from doing something because the tools think there is a risk associated with it. We see that uh, a lot with false positives creating challenges for users or or just many organizations blocking users from going to to certain websites because of the risk that's involved with that. And that's very inconvenient to the, the end user. But if you've got a system which doesn't rely on detection, which is able to use the hardware to use virtualization to contain threats, then you don't need those kind of uh, controls in place. So you, you can allow that document to open. It may turn out to be malicious, but no harm is going to come to the system. So you're not having to get in the user's way, but you're controlling the problem. 
there's also an interesting halfway house that people often forget, and that is to put a little bit of trust in the user. So for instance, uh, in, in my day job, I'm rolling out a, a data leakage prevention tool, which basically does a machine learning type check on the recipients of emails that users are sending to make sure that you've not been incorrectly second-guessed by autocorrect in Outlook, for instance. And yet in that case, you can set it to just warn the user to say, oh, this looks dodgy. Are you sure it's right? You don't have to block everything. And it's a, an interesting concept that certainly hadn't occurred to me until I started looking into it. What this system is basically doing is just sanity checking what the user does. And the user's perfectly within his or her rights to go, yep, actually, that is right. I know it looks unusual, but on this occasion, it's the correct recipient. So I think we're going to see this continuation of trends of organizations really thinking about security from an architectural point of view. What are the uh, resources, what are the, the things that they care most about protecting in their organization, putting appropriate controls around them, and then repeating that process for all of the resources that they have, and really moving to this sort of zero-trust approach where you're applying these sound, time-proven engineering principles to actually enable you to architect your infrastructure to have a much better security posture. That I think is gonna be the trend. You can't think of security anymore as just deploying a set of products and uh, believing that those products will solve the problem. But do our experts think we're staying one step ahead of the cyber criminals and will ultimately win the cyber war? Dave Cartwright. Anyone who asks me how I'm going to stay ahead is implying that we're all ahead and I'm not convinced we are. In many cases, the bad guys are finding the vulnerabilities before the good guys are, which means it's certainly in part of what we do, we're playing catch up. I don't think we'll ultimately win. What we'll continue to do, though, is, is get better and better and better. At some point, hopefully, tech, you know, limitations in technology will slow down the rate of innovation for the attackers. When that'll happen, I don't know. Obviously, we're now getting towards the realms where quantum computing is starting to become a thing. Are the bad guys going to start using that? Yes, absolutely they are. Are very many organizations who are going to be threatened by these bad actors looking into that? Probably not yet. What we can do is to continually push the boundaries of what we do and continually be alert and spend what we can on systems and training and people to, to mitigate the risk. But the word risk is the appropriate one. Cybersecurity is effectively a function of business risk, and you will never, ever reduce the risk to zero. Security is a, is a journey, not a destination. And organizations have to use the availability resources they have to apply appropriate controls and to move the things that uh, they, they care most about securing to prove the security posture around them. And what we need to recognize is that there's a lot of legacy. A lot of the problems come about from you know, decisions that were made over 20, 30 years ago. And we're seeing as the industry as a whole is with new systems that are being built, being able to design security in from the start. And we're seeing that it's becoming harder for attackers to penetrate those systems. So I think that this arms race between attack and defense, there are a fair few years ahead where I think the attackers do have the upper hand in many respects and organizations are having to scramble to try and close the holes and to avoid breaches. But I'm actually confident that in the longer term, things will swing back in favour of defence. Yeah, the, the legacy thing is a really, really important point. I mean, only this week I've been you know, watching BBC One and they're talking about yeah, ISDN, SS7 and SMS scams and, and how you can forge your 
uh, caller ID and, and so on and so on. You know, and here we are in, in 2021 using 1970s technology, which you know, everyone acknowledges is unfit for purpose, but everyone also acknowledges is pretty much impossible to get rid of right now because it underpins so much of the world. And legacy will always be with us and, and will always be the elephant in the room to an extent. Okay, could I just ask you what one thing from your point of view, Ian? Obviously, you guys are very, very deeply immersed in you know, research into what's going on in the industry. Do you guys have a an opinion, an idea of what might be the next big thing, attack-wise? So I think one of the, the key things we need to, uh, to, to really focus on is trying to stop the movement when attackers get into an organization, when they get that beachhead, you know, perhaps compromising an endpoint. And then if you look at how these attacks play out and how what was perhaps initially a minor problem gets escalated and results in a whole organization getting held to ransom. How can we stop that chain? And if you look at how those kind of attacks play out, so often it's actually the attacker wanting to get onto the system of a privileged user, a systems administrator, somebody that actually has the ability to log into some of the high value servers that an organization has and then effectively follow them onto that server. And that's when the impact of these attacks starts getting you know, really expensive. And I think that's a, a, you know, a big focus for what we're doing right now is how can we stop that happening? And that's something that, uh, again, we can use hardware capabilities to prevent that from happening, from isolating that session with the domain controller from what's happening on the rest of the machine. Those are key technologies that enable us to apply these uh, these zero trust principles of you know, least privilege and isolation to actually prevent minor breaches turning into major breaches. That's all for this episode of Establish Your First Line of Defense, brought to you by HP Wolf Security in association with Computer World. Our thanks to Ian Pratt and Dave Cartwright. For more information, go to hpwolfsecurity.computerworld.com uk. Next time in our third and final episode, we dig a little deeper into how best to navigate the current and future threat landscapes. When you get details of the set of forensic investigations that are done into big cyber attacks, I guarantee you, in there somewhere, there'll be a printer will have been part of that. Till then, goodbye.